as Lynn had mentioned um, in her introduction, I, this fall I did a six-week retreat at uh, IMS, uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it gave me an opportunity to um, kind of review my practice. And one of the things that came up for me was uh, kind of a renewed interest in, in um, exploring the part of, of uh, practice known as um, uh, right effort. So I wanted to start by asking, does everybody know about the Eightfold Path? Is there anybody that hasn't heard of that? that... Okay. All right. Well, then, you know that um, uh, right effort is part of the three, um, uh, part of the category of the Eightfold Path uh, dealing with right concentration or right meditation. Um, and usually in the, as uh, the, the teachings of the Buddha have been brought to the West, one of the, the first, first things that's taught is um, right mindfulness, uh, mindfulness meditation. And along with that, right concentration. But the, um, the element of right effort usually isn't um, emphasized or uh, brought to people's awareness at the beginning because I think because um, being from the West, we're quite often so um, caught up in striving wanting to accomplish something to get somewhere that the idea of um, instructing the meditator to just be more simple with their meditation to just allow what comes up um, to be there and to pay attention to it but not to try to to um, spend much time evaluating it or judging it or trying to make it somehow different. Uh, And I think that's important um, for us that that we all have ideas of what we think meditation ought to be like. And so just uh, allowing that simple um, unfolding of the meditation practice to occur is uh, a useful beginning. I wasn't really instructed in right effort until um, a couple years into my practice when I was on a, a 10 day or a, I think a 14 day retreat with Lee Brasington study um, concentration practice. And at that point he, he talked about it much more explicitly. So it's been, it's kind of been on my mind, but I haven't, I haven't really pursued it too much since then other than through developing a practice outside of sitting meditation of checking in with myself whenever I, whenever it occurs to me to look at what is the state of my mind right now. So when I'm driving down the road and I get this impulse, okay, well, what's the state of my mind right now? Is it um, kind of tight or is it relaxed? Am I feeling um, ill will or loving kindness? 
am I confused or do I feel fairly clear? Am I dissatisfied or am I content? You know, that kind of level of just checking in from kind of at odd moments during the day to, to kind of look at what's the, what's the state of my mind and my heart right now. And not doing too much more than that with it, just kind of noticing what it's like and the feeling tone of it, is it pleasant or is it unpleasant or is it neutral? So I think the, the teachings on right effort go a little bit beyond just just paying attention to it, to, to the state of mind. They're actually about bringing some attention or some intention to um, influence the state of one's mind, uh, particularly in particularly within meditation, within sitting meditation, but I think also even in day-to-day practice, even when your eyes are open and you're walking around. So, let's see. I'm going to read something from uh, Tinisru Bhikkhu. He's the abbot at the Wat Metta Monastery down in San Diego, um, who's written extensively um, not only translating the suttas, but also uh, interpreting them and giving teachings. And he has a website called Access to Insight where a lot of this material is available. And uh, that's been a kind of a a real handy uh, reference set for me. So in the area of um, what he calls the four right exertions, uh, I'll start by reading some of Tan Jeff's Words, and then I'll switch into the, the section of the sutta that he's quoting, and then back to Tan Jeff's words again. So Tan Jeff says, The four activities included in this set, how effort can be applied to developing skillful qualities of the mind. The basic formula runs as follows. Now, this is from the suttas. There is the case where a monk generates desire, endeavors, arouses persistence, upholds and exerts his intent. One, for the sake of the non-arising of evil, unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen. Two, for the sake of the abandoning of evil, unskilled qualities that have arisen. Three, for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. And four, for the maintenance, non-confusion, increase, plenitude, development, and culmination of skillful qualities that have arisen. Tanjeff says, These four aspects of effort are also termed guarding, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. All four play a necessary role in bringing the mind to awakening, although in some cases they are simply four sides of a single process. So, um, So to follow this through, of course, we need to know what are skillful and wholesome states of mind and what are unwholesome and unskillful states of mind. And I think probably at some, some level, we, we probably know that as we sit in meditation and observe the state of our mind, the state of our heart, um, we probably have all some intuitive sense of if a, if a mind stream or an emotion or something that's going on um, is there because of greed, delusion, and, and hatred, or whether it's there because of um, the opposites of greed, delusion, and hatred. But I'll start by reading a classical list of, of 16, what they call 16 defilements of the mind. And 
What I'd like to do, um, just before I start going through this, um, I'll, I'll go over them, I'll go through them fairly slowly and deliberately. And you may want to just close your eyes during this and see if any of these resonate with you, if any of these seem at all familiar, um, whether you recognize them as, as um, occurring from time to time. Okay. The first one is um, covet, covetousness and unrighteous greed. The second one is ill will. The third one is anger. The fourth one is hostility or malice. The fifth one is denigration or detraction, contempt. The sixth one is domineering or presumption. The seventh is envy. The eighth is jealousy or avarice, selfishness. The ninth is hypocrisy or deceit. The tenth is fraud. The eleventh is obstinacy or obduracy. The twelfth is presumption or rivalry, impetuosity. The thirteenth is conceit or comparing mind. The fourteenth is arrogance, haughtiness. The fifteenth is vanity or pride. And the sixteenth is negligence or heedlessness. In social behavior, this leads to lack of consideration. Okay, so you may have you may have recognized some of those. You may kind of feel how how some of those feel. I think in this in this list of four right efforts of guarding against the arising of unwholesome mind states which haven't yet arisen and abandoning unwholesome mind states which have arisen, or at least of the first two, I find that the second one is where I start. That most of the time I don't really see the unwholesome mind state before it's arisen, but I know once it's arisen and then I'm in it, I get that moment of kind of waking up and noticing, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm angry or I'm being petty or um, you know, conceit is operating. I'm comparing myself with someone else. And sometimes just that simple paying attention, that simple mindfulness can often be enough that when you see, that when I see one of these states clearly, it just diminishes, drops away. And some, over time, after I've experienced it over and over again, it suddenly occurs to me to put up a warning sign that certain, you know, that certain, when I see certain conditions coming, I know that this is a time when um, an unwholesome state could very likely arise. Um, And the instruction for guarding against the arising of, of unwholesome mind states is um, restraint of the senses. So, so recognizing that there's something at the sense doors and being mindful of it and discriminating, but not going off and, and getting into it. Uh, one, one of the, I'll tell a story from my experience at IMS about um, guarding against uh, unwholesome mind states arising. Quite often when you go on a long retreat or even a, a day-long retreat or even just a, an evening, you know, a, a single sitting like this, um, you might find that there's some other person in the room that just seems to be really irritating. You know, it's just there's something about the way they sit or the way they come in or the way they make sounds that just can trigger some 
could be just mild irritation or um, maybe some resentment or some anger. And particularly on, on long retreats where you're not talking to each other and you're not making eye contact, those, those um, impulses, if left unexamined, have a tendency to grow and grow to amazing proportions given the kind of the how small the, what's going on and what, what's happening actually is. But I found on every retreat that I've gone on, there's always usually somebody that has that um, violates my rules of how yogis ought to behave. And so on this retreat, there was a, a young man sitting in front of me um, who I, I hadn't met before. And here I was going to be sitting behind him for six weeks straight, you know, I don't know, 14 hours a day for 16, for six weeks. And he was almost a caricature of the worst yogi I've ever met. <laughs> he would always come in late. He would never bring Kleenex. He had a, no, a runny nose for like three weeks straight, and he would just, you know, snort and, you know, never, never, you know, like never think to bring a Kleenex. Um, He'd kind of flop down on his cushion. He'd stare out the window. Um, he'd make huge yawns, just yawning sounds that filled the whole room. And somehow I recognized that I could easily spend a lot of time <laughs> with anger and animosity and judgment. Um, and I was really fortunate because... After all of this, after his, what I thought, very un-yogi-like behavior, he would always bow, He would always do three prostrations to the ground before he got up and left. And somehow that um, shifted things for me. That I, 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 There was some compassion that was arisen from seeing him do that. And even though I had never talked to him and I hadn't met him, I had a feeling that there was that all of his restlessness and uh, everything else was coming out of some suffering. And so after about the first day, I just decided to let go of all of the judgment and all of, or to the extent that I could, of all of the judging and all of those um, kind of ill will towards him and just stay with the compassion. And as it turned out at the end, and, and so by and large, those uh, difficult mind states didn't arise, even though you know, he was in front of me virtually the whole time. And later, at, at when we did get a chance to talk, um, he told me that he was in the process of um, coming out of drug and alcohol addiction. And so... Um, I felt like the the compassion and the metta that I had for him um, helped both of us in some ways. So I think it's possible to, at least I've found that that at least in some situations where I know that that unwholesome states often arise for me, that that I can construct warning signs for myself that. You know, this is a place that maybe I should bring more mindfulness. And the instruction that I found in the in the teachings was 
that for, for guarding this, for guarding against the arising of these unarisen states is um, that mindfulness holds hindrances in check by keeping the mind at the level of what is sensed. So I found when I could just stay with what's the direct experience, just the hearing of the rustling, the, the seeing of the movement, and the thoughts arising in, in awareness, but not going beyond that, just staying at that level, that um, it kept the unwholesome states from arising. So the second, the second effort is that of abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. And I think that's where I've probably spent the majority of my time. And particularly on this, on this retreat, I had an excellent teacher. He was another yogi that I was doing the pots with on, uh, after breakfast each morning. And there was something about the way, I don't know what it was, but he had an ability to press about every single button I had and even then some. Um, and with him, I found that he would often get to the kitchen early and start to do, we, we, well, there were three of us doing this job and we had it divided into three separate sets of tasks that each person would do and then each day we would rotate through the, the, the three positions. And yet every morning when I'd come in, he'd always get there early and he'd not only have done his stuff, but he'd start having done my job. And you know, I just wanted to tell him, like, you know, give me my space. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I know how I know how to wash pots. I don't need you to show me. And so, quite often, in in, the, in in working with him, I would find that I'd already be having some ill will towards him, or some judgment of him, some pride in my own ability. And so, I think with him, I was able to practice all five of these instructions on how to deal with abandoning unwholesome mind states. So the first instruction is to expel the, um, the unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought that's its opposite. So if I could take that thought of being, um, being displaced with a thought of being helped, that sometimes that would work for me. Sometimes I could, I could see that his intention was to help and that it wasn't to um, try to be some kind of, uh, be the one in charge or something. That there were some times when I, when I, could, I could just use this technique of um, kind of replacing a wholesome thought, an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. And let's see, in, in, in this category, there are specific instructions for um, things to do if you're in, in meditation. So if, if uh, for the five hindrances, if desire arises, the instruction is to meditate on impermanence. So if there's something that, that seems very desirable, that you really want, then meditating on its impermanence, that whatever, whatever that is, however delightful it would be, it's going to go away. Um, for the hindrance of ill will or aversion, um, switching meditation to doing um, metta, doing loving kindness, can often be a, a helpful antidote for having that um, those thoughts and um, 
qualities of ill will. Let's see, for um, dullness and drowsiness or sloth and torpor, there's actually four different uh, instructions. One is to imagine a bright ball of light. Now, I, I don't think I've ever tried that, but the, the, easy, the simpler version of that is just opening your eyes a little bit. So letting in some light can often uh, help dispel that, that dullness and drowsiness. Um, getting up and doing brisk walking meditation, if that's appropriate, or just standing is, is often helpful. Um, this one I had never seen before until I started studying this was uh, reflecting on death. Um, I think this, this is kind of like reflecting on your own impermanence, that, that, our, that our time in this human realm is, is really pretty short and that there's a great value in waking up. So waking up from our dullness of the moment and then the final instruction is um, just if if none of those three works, just bringing a certain um, willpower, a certain determination to continue to practice, even even though it seems like it would be a lot easier to just close your eyes and not off. See now for the um, for the hindrance of restlessness, the instruction is to bring your awareness to just a simple object. So if you're doing mindfulness meditation and you might find that you're going from the breath to your knee to a thought to an emotion and you know, that you're just um, moving from object to object, um, it could be helpful then to just stick with one simple object. So maybe just stay with the breath and let, let the other objects that are arising just um, stay in the background of awareness. And that can often reduce the, the restlessness and then the fifth um, hindrance is doubt, in particular skeptical doubt about the practice. And this was one that actually came up for me quite a bit on this last retreat. Um, I, had, I had gone into the retreat thinking that I was going to have a, a very serene six weeks. I, was, you know, I decided I was going to get very concentrated. I was uh, hoping to do some samadhi practice. And instead, I spent six weeks with back pain and, you know, and aversion to back pain and aversion to my coworker in the kitchen. And, and just I started seeing aversion much more prevalent, was a lot more prevalent in my experience than I liked to, liked to think of myself as, as having. And so one of my teachers had suggested this. It's like really investigating that doubt you know, these thoughts of doubt coming up um, that are kind of, well, I, I, this might be a little contradictory, but these, these thoughts of doubt that are questioning you, you could turn your awareness and question them back. Well, wh- why should I believe these thoughts of doubt? You know, where are they coming from? Who, you know, what, what, you know what, what gives them any power? So turning that... that um, the, the light of uh, awareness onto those thoughts of doubt and really starting to question them back, um, I, I found helpful. Um, I didn't always remember to do it because doubt was a very um, subtle and kind of seductive um, hindrance that, 
that the thoughts would come, and before I knew it, I was questioning, well, why, why am I here? Why, why am I sitting? You know, why am I doing all this sitting? You know, it's, it just snowed. I could be out walking in the woods. I, you know, um, I could be doing, I could be sleeping. I could be reading. So, in those moments when you recognize that that doubt is operating, um, bringing some investigation can often be real helpful. The second uh, instruction for dealing with abandoning unwholesome states is bringing the, the two, quali- the two um, characteristics of hiri and otapa. Now, these are sometimes translated as shame and moral dread. Now, these were translations done by the English about 100 years ago. Um, I've heard Gill translate these two words as conscience and fear of consequences. So when, when some unwholesome states arise, it can be helpful if you can consider their undesirable consequences and keep considering the undesirableness of, or you know, the, what the consequences of holding these thoughts are until a certain revulsion arises. And I remember seeing this instruction. I thought, you know, shame and moral dread. I, I don't know. That doesn't sound, that sound doesn't sound like Western Buddhism to me. But then I had an experience. I had a, a chance to to experience this when I was on the retreat. This um, this coworker of mine from the kitchen. Um, over time, I I developed a keenly tuned sense of my aversion to him. <laughs> I don't know where where this came from, but. Um, and so even outside of the kitchen, I would find that if I was about to walk into the bathroom, somehow he would just appear in front of me and start walking incredibly slowly. <laughs> or um, in this one case, I was trying to get into the coat room and the, the door wouldn't open. And when it did, I found that he had been leaning against it so that he could take his shoes off. And then he left his shoes right in front of the door. And... Very calmly, he turned and he walked away. And I just imagined myself very mindfully bending down, picking up his shoes, very mindfully walking to the front door of the building, very mindfully opening the door, and very mindfully throwing the shoes into the snowbank on the other side of the driveway. And then actually feeling some glee (laughs) at doing that until in my mind those shoes hit the snow. And when they hit the snow, I suddenly really recoiled. I mean, and this was in my mind. When, when they hit the snow, I really recoiled at kind of the meanness and pettiness that was behind that. And it, it shifted my relationship with my thoughts and feelings towards him. That I really didn't like the feeling that I would harbor that kind of meanness and pettiness to somebody because of where he put his shoes. So I think that that, can, that particular strategy, um, for me, worked in a way that was um, kind of mysterious. I mean, I, I, it wasn't something that I had planned to do, but it was quite effective. I mean, when I saw where holding that mind state led me, it was really a place that I, I didn't like. I didn't like... Um, and it was effective at, at um, tempering the, that animosity that I had been sort of almost, almost, almost savoring. So then the next 
um, strategy for dealing uh, with the abandoning of unwholesome states is diversion of attention. So sometimes I've found when, when the thought process isn't too strong, that sometimes I can just move my attention to something else or just not, not realize that it's going on, but just not feed it, not put any more wood on that fire. And then the fourth instruction is sort of the opposite of that. Rather than diverting one's attention is to really confront that mind state and, and investigate it. So um, again, with this, again with my coworker in the kitchen, um, towards the end of the retreat, I, re- I wondered why his wanting to help me, what, what did it keep triggering? Why was I so resistant to letting him help me? And when I started to look at it, I realized that when I go back and visit my father, he often does that. He's often trying to help me in ways that I don't want to be helped. And this man was about the same age as my father and doing things very similar. And so I, I could see that this was, this was kind of like a very old pattern that, that was actually that this poor guy on the retreat was getting the full brunt of. So I found um, the investigation was a very helpful thing in that, in that particular case. And then the last instruction for abandoning unwholesome mind states, uh, sometimes they're just so strong that none of these other four um, strategies seem to work, that, that the, the groove is so deep and you've thrown so much fire on that wood already that um, just suppression, just uh, as a last resort, just using one's will to just say no, kind of take the Nancy Reagan approach, just say no to this mind state. Um, so those are, the, those are the instructions for the, the second noble effort. Um, so now we get to developing unarisen wholesome states. And the list of those are basically the seven factors of enlightenment. And the seven factors... Um, are usually written in a, in a sequential order, although they don't necessarily have to arise this way. The first one is mindfulness. So that's something that we're, in meditation, we're already doing. So as we, as we um, strengthen our mindfulness in meditation, then you're already bringing up a wholesome state of mind that you're paying attention. The mindfulness can be followed by investigation. So mindfulness in itself is just noting the, the bare experience that's happening. And then from there, going to investigation, you know, pay, paying a little, you know, a little bit more questioning or a little bit more, you know, what is, what is asking that question, what is this? Looking into it. From there, there's um, energy, some persistence, some uh, greater interest in uh, continuing with the mindfulness and the investigation. Uh, joy or rapture, just a, a, a you know, physical sense of well-being and, um, and joy. Um, and then tranquility or serenity. And uh, after that, concentration. And then followed by equanimity. So although they're given in a linear progression like this, I suspect we've all had moments, both in, in meditation and outside, where we've We've um, had that straight state of serenity, a state of um, feeling concentrated on one object and feeling 
like it's it's um, fairly stable, and then also equanimity, that that ability to not fall into extremes of emotion, so to stay, um, to not get blown all the way to one end of the emotional spectrum or the other, but to stay um, balanced in the midst of changing conditions. I have to admit that that's, for me, uh, those uh, developing these unarisen mind states has mostly been in in, uh, during long during long retreats and usually accompanied not only by doing mindfulness meditation but also doing some kind of uh, concentration and also some um, loving kindness meditation. See, and then the final noble effort is um, maintaining wholesome mind states that have already arisen. And there I have to rely almost exclusively on the teachings <laughs> rather than my own experience. Um, but the instruction there is to keep um, firmly in mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. And I, and I think when I think about that one, I've experienced mostly when I've done long periods of metta, like maybe um, spend an hour of just doing metta for um, myself and for my teacher, um, for a friend, for a neutral person, for uh, a difficult person, for all, all, all of us as a group, and then expanding outward. And during those times, I have found that this, this sense of um, well-being and loving kindness has arisen and has actually, I've been able to maintain it for some period of time, you know, right through into into leaving the meditation hall and going out for walking. And then, so that's a lot of, that was a lot of different instructions for these four um, right efforts. And the last part that I wanted to talk about was, um, or actually, again, read from Tan Jeff, was about what's the right amount of effort. These were all about specific categories of effort. But, um, but I was really um, kind of instructed by something I, I read the other day from Tan Jeff talking about how does one apply this. It says, uh, this emphasis on personal exploration is crucial to the practice of right, right effort for it encourages one to be sensitive to what can be discovered with one's own mindfulness and discernment. Let's see. Thus, through observation, one will realize that skilled effort has no room for doctrinaire approaches. The polar extremes of constant exertion to the point of exhaustion and its opposite, a knee-jerk fear of efforting, are both misguided here, as is the seemingly middle way of moderation in all things. The true middle way means tuning one's efforts to one's abilities and to the task at hand. In some cases, this entails an all-out effort. In others, simple watchfulness. The ability to sense what kind and what level of effort is appropriate in any given situation is an important element in developing the basic requirements for skill, mindfulness and discernment by putting them to use. So um, I guess we still have a few minutes. Um, Do you have any questions or anything um, you'd like to share about your experience with dealing with states of mind? I have a question. When I'm 
looking at my states of mind more in depth. I have, I have that judging mind that's really strong. And I wonder how do you keep that from keeping in when you're trying to look at your states of mind and, and influence that, how do you keep from just being really judging, judging well, I would think that you'd want to start by really being mindful, mindful of judging. You know, to just notice that's what's going on, and um, bringing some investigation to it, perhaps. I mean, that's that's one of the instructions: is who's being judged? What what you know what? Why should I? Why you know, kind of like why should I believe these judgments? You know, what gives them? What gives them any um, traction? It, it, it's one of the one of the. Um, I dealt with that quite a bit on this last retreat, and uh, actually one of the techniques that helped me both with judging thoughts and with thoughts in general was a technique that um, Guy Armstrong taught me of kind of using your awareness like a spotlight. He said thoughts are kind of like thieves in your house at night, and if you turn the spotlight on them. They'll scurry away. So I would, when I when I kind of find that there were just these kind of background of thoughts going on, I'd say, okay, let's turn on the light, and then and then kind of play. It was sort of like playing a game of like seeing, okay, what's the next thought going to be, and just really paying attention to what you know, like when when does the next thought arise, and it was amazing. Just that that idea of like turning, you know, kind of shining this light on your your mind and and on the thoughts, um, they really scampered. I mean, eventually, you know, I mean, a thought would come back, and I'd I'd look at that. But um, I, I found that one really useful. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I've been trying to look ignore them. I guess I just want to say thank you because it's such a broad topic and it is very useful and it's not something that I've heard.